Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Japan on Film fans. Obviously, you're here because you love Japanese movies. But you know what else is almost as good? Books. Especially books that have been the basis for some of the films we talk about on this very show. Now, I know what you're thinking. You'd love to read more books, but you don't have the time. Well, I've got a solution for you, and that solution is called Audible. Audiobooks are perfect to put on in the background when you're doing chores or when you're stuck in traffic. And Audible's got a lot of great titles that are perfect for fans of the show. For example, if you love the movie Audition, then you've got to check out the novel it's based on by Ryu Murakami. Or Koshin Takami's Battle Royale, narrated by the great Mark Dacascos. There's also my personal favorite Japanese author, the world-renowned Haruki Murakami. Hey, you can even check out some of my books, such as Fallen Idol, featuring a private detective's investigation into the suicide of a disgraced J-pop idol. There's also a plethora of excellent history books about Japan you can sample, many of which I use when I'm discussing these movies. John Dower's Embracing Defeat or John Tolan's The Rising Sun if you want to know about Japan during and after the war, or go even more unique with African Samurai by Thomas Lockley, which tells you the story of the legendary warrior Yasuke, who fought on behalf of Lord Nobunaga. Whatever your interests, Audible's got something for you. And if you go to audibletrial.com slash japanonfilm, you can get a free membership trial. They'll give you access to one free audiobook of your choice and two free Audible Originals. Plus, the best part, these books are yours to keep forever, even if you cancel before the free trial ends. So stop wasting time with podcasts, you know, except this one, of course, and get your free audiobooks by going over to audibletrial.com slash japanonfilm. Welcome to the Japan on Film Podcast. I am your host, Perry Constantine, and we're back here with another episode with another returning guest, and that is Patrick. Uh, Patrick Terry, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. How are you, Perry? Doing good. Uh, welcome back to the show. Nice to have you back again. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. I, I look forward to our conversation today. Yeah, I was, because um, uh, we recorded the the episode on uh, Sailor Suit and Machine Gun, you know, back in the summer, and it was just released, you know, a few weeks before we recorded this. So just re-listening to that episode, you know, even a few months later, I was surprised at like how many different things we were able to 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 get to and to to find to talk about in that. So really looking forward to jumping back into it again, having the similar discussion with today's movie. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the talking about Sailor Suit and Machine Gun, you know, I 
in particular was interested in all the things that were happening in the, um, you know, particularly the 1980s for that film, but just Katakawa, you know, as a figure and in a very different way. Uh, I'm, it's really nice to be able to have a chance to talk about Itami Juzo, who is mm. more, more well known in the States. But still, there are films of his that I think have had less exposure. And I think the one that we're talking about today sort of fits into that mold. There, are, there was a release of it with English subtitles. So mm -hmm. people beyond Japan have had an opportunity to see it. And now, uh, at least within the United States and places that have access, it's on the Criterion channel. So people can stream it. So there's a little bit better access to this film than Sailor Suit Machine Gun and mm -hmm. perhaps some of the other films, you know, like uh, even like when we think of like the sequels to the uh, the Tetsuo series that you've been talking about recently, you know, those are still sometimes a little bit more difficult to get your hands on. So it's mm -hmm. nice that, you know, we have this variety and hopefully, you know, with more conversations, more exposure, there'll be more access to these different films. But yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to today. Yeah, I can't remember how I initially stumbled onto this movie, but it, it was actually just like last year when I first heard about it. Um, I think it was just like looking through different movies to show for my class and getting ideas for different different things to, to talk about with them. And this movie, I think, showed up on one of the, um, you know, one of those top 10 lists of like, you know, top 10 Japanese movies or something along okay. those lines. Um, and And when I was looking for information about it in Western sources, there wasn't a whole lot. Like I know it had gotten some critical acclaim overseas, but when it came to trying to find, you know, um, like US DVD releases or something like that, it seems like it, the only release was like a VHS copy. Yeah, yeah. And I believe that um, now sort of before, you know, finding this film, had you seen other Itami Juzo films prior to this? Had you seen any of his other films? I've seen Tom Popo, um, okay. and I just wanted to double check, see if there's anything else of his I've seen. Uh, Tom Popo, I definitely saw. I don't think I've seen anything else. Okay. Um, but okay. I know The Funeral is a, apparently amazing, and I have to check that out. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, he's just a really interesting figure. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that you've seen Tom Popo is, you know, I think that's the entry point for most people with uh, Itami's films. Mm -hmm. And then and then the funeral was also pretty successful. It, I think it did get some festival releases in the United States. So, it, you know, there, even early on, there was an attempt to get his films sort of seen in a market beyond the domestic sphere, because in some ways, the characters in his films uh, had a little bit more of like an easy access of, of transfer. So there wasn't as right. much difficulty for people to kind of connect with the characters. So even though the funeral is looking at a specific type of funeral in Japan, the process of how we grieve or how we deal with the, the loss of a, of a family member, uh, but equally what we societally expect of ourselves and the people around us when an event like this happens, I think is very translatable. So even if there are specific you know, cultural specificities. It's a film that, you know, is very easy to understand sort of the challenges that the characters are facing. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, do you know how long ago you uh, you remember seeing Tom Popo the first time? Um, the first time I saw it was probably about, um, maybe about like 10 years ago or so. It was actually, I was actually in Japan at the time and uh, a friend of mine had, um, it was his favorite Japanese movie. So he brought it over one night and we watched it. And then I hadn't seen it again until maybe about a year or two ago. Um, my wife and I watched it one night. We were trying to find something to watch. Um, 
But, and I think actually the last time I watched it, it was after I had already watched uh, Mimbo, which, um, which is kind of a, a nice little interesting way to go about it because I actually, um, I'm not sure how you feel about this, but I actually found uh, Mimbo to be a lot, uh, a lot more interesting, a lot more engaging than uh, Tom Popo. You know, I think I think the beauty of Itami's films is that depending upon where you are in your life and mm. uh, what your mood is, his films sort of hit on a range of subject matter. So if you are at a place where you are thinking more about potentially like, you know, corruption, society, the way laws, the way uh, not just how society functions, but how our legal codes help define our life, something mm -hmm. like uh, Mimbo Nona, uh, or really the one that kind of put him on the map beyond Tampopo, uh, Marusa Nona, and the sequel. Uh, Is that the taxi, a taxing woman? That's right. Yeah. A taxing mm -hmm. woman and a taxing woman returns where you're dealing with uh, basically uh, a, a woman at, at the start of the first film is becoming an investigator in the Japanese version of the IRS. And so you're looking at tax fraud, tax schemes that, mm -hmm. again, kind of border on the Yakuza gangster types that we see you know, as the central focus of uh, Mimbo Nona, uh, but it's done with uh, a lot more comedic flair on the part of our main actress, uh, Nobuko Miyamoto, who is in, you know, the majority of Itami's films as mm. the sort of central character. And so like, there's all these wonderful things. And that's why I think this is going to be a tangential conversation, because the moment I start thinking about Mimbo Nona or something that, um, um, Miyamoto does in one film it makes me you know think of you know Taxing Woman mm -hmm. or Tom Popo or uh, even you know their first film um, uh, The Funeral uh, because there is such a close partnership between them as a couple you know they met in the 60s and you know had had a family and a life together but they still kind of pine to you know return to their professional careers and in the 1980s they were able to kind of start doing that again and had a very prolific career up until uh, Itami's death. So mm -hmm. they, you know, have, I think, 12 films altogether. Um, and each of them is looking at this different facet of life. You know, you have the funeral, you have one that's looking at uh, food culture with Tom Popol, the mm -hmm. you know, tax fraud with Marisa Nona, um, the, you know, again, the Yakuza and, uh, and the way in which sort of the legal system works and doesn't work for people. Mm -hmm. And followed up with, you know, something that's looking at the health industry and the supermarkets and witness protection. There's just all of these different facets of life that Itami is able to, you know, look at very serious subjects, but equally have a bit of, you know, either slapstick or light humor sort of in, injected into all of them. And I think mm -hmm. that that's why Tom Popo in particular hit so hard because food culture you know, you can have something that reminds you of, you know, what might be happening in your own country, but then equally you feel like you're getting a, a window into some of the societal expectations of people in Japan, whether that's accurate or not, you still feel like you're, you're, you're being given this, you know, mm. sort of close view of, of what society is or how society functions. And I think Mimbo Nona is one that should have a little bit more light shined on it because I, you know, like yourself, I was really a, drawn to it the first time I watched it because mm -hmm. my route to seeing it was um, actually in university. And after seeing the sequel to A Taxing Woman, that was the first Itami film I saw was A Taxing Woman Returns. In the following semester, I was in a completely different course, completely different instructor. And his favorite up to that point was Mimbo Noona. And he had that VHS copy you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. So that was the way that I saw it were, you know, with those really kind of 
fuzzy tracking a little bit misaligned and mm -hmm. the hard-coded subtitles on it uh but just the sort of the power and the force of Miyamoto uh as our our main sort of you know and basically you know poking and prodding the Yakuza and and just seeing how Inoue really sort of is able to fool them and make them look fools you know even more foolish than they already are mm -hmm. uh just delighted me over and over again and it's it's one that i think that on first viewing can be really enjoyable in just the punch of it but you can watch it two three four more times and you can pick out a new element each time you watch it so yeah i'm looking forward to sort of seeing what were the things maybe on a more recent viewing that stood out to you and 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 myself i definitely took down a number of notes as i was watching it again and just sort of thinking oh my goodness he includes this and this mm -hmm. and this yeah, one of the things that I really took from it, I'm just checking out my own notes here, is um, right in the beginning, just, and this is something I noticed after living in Japan, just the way everybody just ignores what's happening right in front of them, right? The Yakuza are causing this whole big scene in the hotel. Um, the hotel staff is clearly flustered. They don't know what to do about it. And in the background, you've just got all these people just sitting there calmly, just like reading their newspapers and having their coffee or whatever, and just completely pretending like none of this is happening. And it's just, right. it was such a powerful metaphor for how Japanese society, especially at that time, reacted to the Yakuza. It was just kind of like this out of sight, out of mind, even when it happens right in front of your face. I mean, and, and that's something that, you know, definitely I experienced living in Japan of, you know, what seemed to be something that would cause attention or, or be a commotion that, you know, as a group you can ignore. But I feel like that translates to other cultures too. Mm -hmm. Like someone could be like in, in distress or in pain. And there's almost like a group mentality that, you know, no one really wants to, to sort of get in the middle of that, you know, like whether it's a, like a shouting match on a, on a bus or, mm -hmm. or, you know, someone maybe tripped and fell on the street, you know, there might be someone that helps them out, but if there's a big enough group, there's almost this uh, strange tension that sort of builds up. Whereas if it was one person like you or I, and someone fell, we'd probably run right over to try to help and see if they were all right. So there is something about that mm -hmm. group mentality of, you know, we don't want any trouble. Don't bother us. Let us be, well, if I just keep my head down, you know, maybe we can just, you know, move past this, where the Yakuza, you know, at least within the world of this film, are exploiting that to no end, you know, that if any time they're told that they have to change their behavior, you immediately make a bigger scene, mm -hmm. so that that very quickly the staff is doing anything they can to sort of calm them down you know yeah, whether it's yeah. from you know the verbal commands or you know most often the the money bribes mm -hmm. that they've been had had been given and continue to be given through the early portion of the film right yeah the um the whole uh diffusion of responsibility right when you're, when you're in a group like even you know the 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 famed you know mo mostly apocryphal story of uh kitty genovese um who was being attacked and raped uh, in the apartment courtyard. And apparently other people had heard about it and they were watching and nobody had called the police, which turns out in retrospect, it, that was mostly apocryphal. People actually did call the police. So, um, but, uh, but there were like problems with police response or something along those lines, but it wasn't what, but you do see, I remember one time when I was still in the States, there was this massive, um, car accident when I was on when I was on the road like a car just completely flipped over and you know we all everyone else obviously stopped and we're all just get out of our cars and for like a good five minutes all of us are just standing there watching right right because everybody's mm -hmm. so shocked and don't and waiting like well should I do something or should I wait for someone else to do something 
And then beyond that, the idea that, you know, if you're living in a society that has laws, rules, regulations, mm. you can easily pass off your own personal sense of responsibility to do something when the expectation is that as a city, we've established police, mm-hmm. fire stations, uh, other types of volunteer groups, things that are beyond us that have an actual systematic uh, you know, role in the city, in the society to, to handle these types of incidents. And in certain ways, that's what we have in this hotel, this hotel being this sort of microcosm of all of the things that are happening in society so that when you have this rebellious element of the Yakuza in there, it all, all of a sudden is not on the individual patrons mm. to directly say like, hey, you're being too loud, can you please be quiet? But, you know, not unlike if you're going to a theater and maybe someone was being too loud or, you know, when we used to go to theaters, um, but be able to, you know, talk directly, that usually could, you know, potentially lead to more trouble. So then you pass that off to someone in some type of either administrative role mm-hmm. or in a role of uh, either security, you know, management, something that's beyond you that is connected with the place that you're in, the organization that you're a part of. So this hotel staff, then, as we see, they are scrambling to figure out how to resolve the problem of Yakuza continually coming into their space and, you know, flaunting the rules and taking their money and figuring and devising different ways to, you know, get every little bit of of extra coin that they Mm -hmm. can from these kind of uh, really inept, you know, or at least what they presented at the beginning, kind of inept uh, staff members of the hotel. Mm Yeah, and they um, and they can't even get witnesses to testify on their behalf, right? Because when the police come, the hotel staff, you know, they're like, "Oh, look, all of these people here saw it," and nobody says they saw anything, right? Right. It's just right. more of the more of what you're uh, t- talking about that whole idea of they just don't want to get involved at all with that. Um, another thing that stuck out to me is just like the the portrayal of the yakuza, right? It's it's so different from what we usually think of, like the yakuza when you're looking at them either in Japanese movies or in foreign movies, they're, they're always portrayed as like the, like almost like a strong silent type, right? Mm. Or, um, you know, there's a lot of carryover from the samurai pictures of old and the Yakuza feel like they're like modern day samurai. That's how they try to look at themselves. And that's, and there have been a lot of Yakuza organizations that have actually funded you know, low budget Yakuza movies in Japan. And they also try to push that, that whole image that we're, we're on, we're an honorable organization, right? We're criminals, but we're, we still have honor. We, we're still, um, and they, and they've done stuff like, and they have, there are instances where they have backed that up to some extent, like the, I think it was the Kobe earthquake when they were able to dispatch emergency personnel and aid faster than the government was able to. Right. Yeah. So you have those kinds of stories, you know, that, you know, in the in a very different vein in the film world, like thinking uh, kind of nostalgically about the way the Godfather portrayed a a mafia family, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, but they equally were like providing services to their community. Right. And there's the the famous scene when the when the famous scene the Godfather reminded of. I just want to get this out before I forget it. When um, when they're talking about the idea of getting into the drug trade. Right. And right. and Don Corleone, Marlon Brando is just like, no, we're not going to mess around with that. Right. We deal with we deal with alcohol. We deal with women. We deal with gambling. Those are harmless crimes. Right. They're yeah. not necessarily, but still. 
Right. Well, it's 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 all in whatever rules you create for your organization. And even and even that, even in the world of that film, you know, they ultimately give in to to, you know, selling drugs, you know, through making an arrangement with the other families. So, mm-hmm. you know, even these even these seemingly, you know, hard rules that they set for themselves can always be manipulated if there's enough money yeah. involved. But but what you were saying about the ability for the Yakuza to provide services after the Kobe earthquake, you know, that's that's definitely something that's, you know, you know, shared pretty pretty frequently of you know it's it's again another sign that there is too much red tape in government i mean mm-hmm. if we look at you know kurosawa's film from the 1950s ikiru you know right. the entire film is about a, a low-level public uh, office worker who's trying to cut through the red tape of society so a park can be built you know it's sort of the the sweetest version of uh, like nbc's parks and recreation mm-hmm. where you know you have someone you know just trying their very best to do something they think would be good but they're being stopped by all of the rules regulations that have been established over time of of how things get processed how things get accomplished and the yakuza are able to kind of cut right through that yeah and so that's where you have you know a little bit of a glorification of them but equally if you look at you know the uh, ken takakura films of the 1970s the toei ninkyo ega you know there are all of these uh, depictions of you know they're they are somewhat uh stoic figures mm-hmm. uh, and sort of a, a hyper hyper sort of representation of masculinity or a type of masculinity uh, but there's equally if you think of the uh, gangster films that are happening kind of parallel to uh, Mimbo no Ona that uh, Kitano is making, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, Boiling Point or uh, probably at this point, uh, oh, it would be uh, a few years after, I think, 94, when Sonatine is released. And I, right. I think about that as being equally having some humorous moments, but you'll still have these kind of uh, Yakuza battles that are taking place, lots of gunplay and uh, these you know, sort of intense dramas. So there are these sort of patterns that we see Yakuza behaving as. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to have a picture like Mimbo Nona, I feel like really strips down some of the images that we have of these characters. Because, you know, if we think of the opening of the film, so the opening of the film is, you know, is at this pool in the hotel mm-hmm. and you have four or five Yakuza, uh, you know, with their, you know, Irezumi on full display, you know, they're, you know, just going to go right into the pool. There's lots of close-up shots. So you see them sort of walking with active defiance. Like they know that tattoos are not allowed in a, mm. in a pool area or a spa area. Uh, and, you know, we have the confrontation with the, um, you know, what seems to be a, a lobby person. And, and you have this sort of classic vision of what the Yakuza are. So you open the film with, with seemingly this idea of what Yakuza are. But the moment that uh, Nobuko, or our uh, character mm-hmm. of uh, Mahiru Inoue, steps into frame, you start to see that image get taken down a notch. Yeah. And you start, you start to see that they are a bit of sort of oafish people because right. they, she just leads them around with anything that she's saying, you know, talking about, you know, that this is a place that diplomats come and, you know, the vice president of the United States might be here and any of these plainclothes people could be police officers. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's aided, it's aided by the fact that we had the shot earlier of, you know, a woman reading a book in English, uh, a seemingly a, a foreigner, you know, working mm-hmm. on a laptop. So it's creating this cosmopolitan atmosphere for this hotel, a suggestion and, and the entire structure of the um hotel looks to be sort of a a faux european uh sort of 
a glamorous hotel setting. Right. So it suggests that you're going to have a mix mash of, of people from Japan and people from other countries that would be staying at this place. And so equally, the people that are from Japan, there's an expectation of the type of food, the type of service that you would receive mm. in a in a hotel like this, as opposed to a ryokan or some other type of place that, uh, you know, would have more uh, traditional Japanese uh, sort of in features. Right. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus uh and and i just love that very quickly we we are given this idea of what you've seen with yakuza all the way through you know the most popular period of the you know 70s and 80s and and then with one you know quick dialogue uh you know sort of monologue from uh inoue we are just sort of looking at oafish people for the rest of the film because yeah. any other sequence, any other sequence, they are almost just sort of screaming and spitting out every bit of dialogue. You know, they, they're, they're just sort of this, uh, they're all color coded too. They each have their, you know, colors that they're wearing in their suits. So there's just this, uh, sort of stripping away of any sort of individuality or uh, sense that these are people in control of anything. And really they're just sort of loud shouting buffoons. Yes. Yeah. I, that there's also that, that one scene that especially illustrated that is there's um, there's a confrontation she has with the Yakuza guys behind the negotiating table where there's sh the guy shouting at her and, and saying like, you know, my men aren't afraid to go to prison. She's like, Oh really? Well, why are you saying, why are you bringing that up? You know, if, if you're telling me that they're afraid to get to prison, are you making a threat against me? And he's like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not. And she's like, well, maybe I should get your names. And she just, she remains completely calm. Like she never breaks at all when she's facing off of them. And, and you can tell like when you're looking at the, the Yakuza and they're trying to, they're trying to intimidate her. The fact that she's not reacting in any way other than, you know, calm indifference to their threats. It just, they don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Right. I mean, and and again, like it can't be understated that, you know, you have a female character at the center of this. You know, yes. we're still, you know, we still have really bad gender politics in Japan that, you know, when I am teaching my class every year, um, you know, as you revisit things that would be considered classic films, some of the boundaries of of what women could or were able mm. to do within within the representation of specific films or the or the way in which society is depicted in in an ozu picture or a kurosawa film whether it's you know a a present day picture or, or a samurai film or jidaigeki you know you 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 confront how limited some of these characters are and one of the gifts i think that uh 
Itami does is that, you know, it, it almost seems like a farce that you have a female character with as much control, composure, um, and agency that she does in all the films so that even if it wasn't uh, something that would be relatable or, or actualized at the time, I think it can be a, you know, a, a successful sort of push to, you know, say like, you know, all of these things are sort of artificial constructs of who should be in power, who should mm -hmm. be in control. And that with just the uh, means and ability, any person can accomplish that. But within the context of this film, she is sort of seen, you know, kind of in the way that like the manga Hataraki man, um, you know, sort of puts like, you know, this, woman with the power of two and a half men or three men you know there's still sort of this idea that she is put on a pedestal by the very fact that she can mm -hmm. stand up to these yakuza you know and the staff can kind of be uh enamored with with her ability and her skill but i i think that if you look at all of itami's films kind of in conjunction with one another uh just the way that he you know looks at the person of his of uh, uh, you know the reality of his wife um uh, of uh, Nobuko Miyamoto mm -hmm. uh, and the characters that she plays from Tom Popo on, there's always like a little bit of her personality along with this kind of uh, fantastic uh, version of, you know, a, a woman who's able to come in and really change things around. You know, if you, you know, look at uh, a supermarket woman or mm -hmm. um, a woman in uh, witness protection, you know, and, and, and definitely Mimbonona, you know, you yeah. have this, you have this just, I feel like uh, just a great representation of the possibility that society can have that we may not, we might not be there right now, but we need to work towards, you know, removing some of these boundaries and barriers that we have. Oh, absolutely. That was one of the things that I made a note of too. And I actually looked up the numbers for this when I taught this movie to my class last year. And um, so this is uh, today, less than 20% of the lawyers in, Jap in Japan are women. And the ones who actually are prominent enough and stand up to the Yakuza and take action against the Yakuza, like Inoue does in this movie, all of those are men. And, you know, and that's today in 2020. So you go back to, right. or 20, this might, this episode might actually drop in 2021, but, but, uh, but you go back to 1992, right? And you have to imagine just the numbers must have been even lower back then. Yeah, and I was watching the making of of the picture, and they interview probably three, four, five, uh, you know, attorneys that do um, mimbo uh, work, mm -hmm. and yeah, all men and all very aged men too. Yes, you know, yeah. there there was there was never a young person that was sort of fresh out of law school, you know, that was you know new to the firm that they were interviewing. It was someone that was just you know, looked, looked like they were, you know, an, an aging, you know, Yakuza boss themselves and mm -hmm. the way that their, their hair was done and some of their mannerisms and things, you know, it, it was kind of stri striking to me to see that, you know, there were, there was definitely none of the boisterous behavior that you see of the Yakuza in the film, but uh, just in terms of what they, what they saw as reality uh, depicted in the film versus kind of some of the fantastical elements that, that are included in the picture. Um, I think that they were still somewhat impressed by the choices that uh, mm -hmm. Itami and his group made in terms of the schemes that are presented in the film, which, you know, after watching this film two or three times, I'm kind of struck, like, how did you think of the, the individual schemes the Yakuza members came up with? Like, you know, it, compared to other films, I, I was kind of surprised in some ways of some of the things we saw. Okay, uh, well, let's touch on that. I'm curious, what, what surprised you about some of the schemes? 
Well, just sort of, you know, when I think of a group that would be a, a criminal organization that is trying to, uh, you know, gain money, gain opportunity in any way they can, you know, things like the, uh, you know, putting the cockroach in the lasagna mm-hmm. or, or leaving a bag and, you know, needing someone to, you know, pay up and, and, you know, and return that sort of, sort of funds. It just felt very low level, it felt very low stakes types. Of, and that's where I think the, the English title of adding, you know, the, the, the gentle art of extortion, which is mm-hmm. not part of the Japanese title is to kind of, I think, uh, give, you know, viewers outside of uh, Japanese context, you know, a little bit of a sense of, you know, these are not high level crimes that you're trying to accomplish. They're trying mm-hmm. to just get a little penny at a time or a yen at a time from, uh, you know, a hotel or a different organization, you know, but it's still not presented in the same way that traditional mafia or, or even other Yakuza films where they're providing protection to that business. Right, you know, right. They, so that, that was something that like, I felt was like, unique and nice to sort of see which again i feel mm. connects back to kind of the oafish sort of behavior of it that there may be people that you know represent this kind of criminal mastermind idea but there's probably a lot of people that are much more like this that just try to use a little bit of power a little bit of control over someone that's a little bit weaker uh you know through any kind of means necessary to to get a little bit of money but i just i i was curious how specific schemes uh, struck you but the the cockroach one definitely stands out really big to me just because it mm. feels like such a a very low level way to try to extort something out of a out of a business or or a restaurant it actually doesn't surprise me that they would resort to to tax like that because it's so it's so low-key that you know what are you going to do you're going to go to the police and tell them the yakuza are shaking me down because they put a cockroach in the lasagna right it it, right it's such a low-key thing that it's not like you know the yakuza are are asking for money or they'll break my windows Right. That, right. That's a little bit that's a little bit more of a physical threat. The police can actually have some action against that. Whereas, you know, the Yakuza are putting insects in their own food. You know, the, the police are going to be like, <laughs> how are you going to prove that to me? Like that there's. Right. So I think in, in one way, it's kind of clever in that way, whereas going with these very small crimes and especially with the whole Japanese concept of. Um, uh Omotenashi, where, you know, it's all about, you know, providing like the best service and all that. And the hospital doesn't want to risk losing their reputation at all. And so those types of things, they, that actually does make sense. Also, it, it goes to the pettiness of these criminals. And, and also, I think I'm not really sure when the, the decline of the Yakuza really started. It may have been in this time period. It may have been later, but if it was, if it was in this time period, that also helps to serve to, to illustrate just like how far they've fallen, right? They went yeah. from being these massive organizations with all this control and all these um, political connections to now, you know, slipping cockroaches into their food to, to bilk a few, you know, a, a few 10,000 yen notes off of the hotel. So um, another thing too is I have heard of stuff like this in real life too. I had... Um, I had a friend uh, years ago when um, I first came to Japan who was extorted by some guys who I don't think they were actually Yakuza, but they were they tried to play themselves off as Yakuza. And um, I can't remember the exact details, but he had met some girl or something at, at a bar and, you know, they had a night together and then she had asked for some money or something. He gave him some money. And the next day, you know, 
she calls him up and she's like, oh, come on downstairs. Comes downstairs and there and there are these two guys with her in the car and they're like, get in the car. He gets in the car and um, and one of the guys is telling her, it's, it's like, uh, you know, um, you need to give us, you know what she used that money for? And he's like, uh, no, he's like, she used it for drugs. Like you, you gave her drug money, that's illegal. And it's like, right. you better, and you know, unless you want us to go tell the police, you better give us, give us all the money you can get out of your bank account right now. And they had tried to pull this scheme on him like a few times. Eventually he ended up getting a, getting a friend to help him out. The friend ended up working with the police and they ended up catching the guys. And it turned out they had no affiliation with the Yakuza, but it was just that kind of example of just like how they'll, they'll use like these, these strong arm tactics and like these implied threats, you know, and just the, the, the mystique of the Yakuza alone they'll hold that over as a way to, to try and get what they want. And that's really the early part of the film, the first uh, 30, 40 minutes until um, the Inoue character really uh, enters into the, the picture proper, mm-hmm. uh, where it, it really is showing that most of the actions and behaviors of the hotel members who don't want to see anything, don't want to talk, uh, and more so the staff members who are quick to want to pay them off, is that mystique. The idea mm-hmm. of the of the threat of what could happen, because you don't actually see any real violence or real repercussions take place as a result. It's all just through loud voices, language, mm-hmm. and and either direct or implied threats. And and so, like you're saying, you know, you use the fear of someone who's afraid of what could happen as the mm-hmm. means by which to to take whatever you can from them. So that's where you know I think that we are seeing this. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You know, push back and forth in the film of how much uh, is bluster and how much is there actually some, you know, repercussions or violence that can mm-hmm. come as a result of, of these uh, actions. And I think that if you look at other Yakuza pictures of, you know, like I was saying, like, you know, Toei's, um, you know, sort of run through pictures or the um, Fukusaku Kinji films of uh, the battles without honor and humanity from the mm-hmm. 1970s, you know, that are taking more of a historical, you know, perspective on the sort of outgrowth of the Yakuza, you know, there you see a lot more violence, you know, you see right. the the finger cutting, you see the destruction, and it, it at least within those films, it sort of supports Inoue's notion that, you know, gangster members are mostly interested in, you know, fighting and killing each other to control yeah. things and less about, you know, putting violence on others. But but seeing that in representations in the media and maybe having an interaction, you know, like uh, what your friend described, you know, those things can kind of put some real fear in the average person if they oh, were yeah. to ever run yeah. up against someone. Yeah. That was, and that was one point that I liked that they make in the movie when, um, she strips away a lot of what that that mystique is, right? Because most of these guys, you know, probably before the events of this movie, the only interaction they ever had with the Yakuza was probably from movies and TV. And, and so they probably never had any interactions with them in real life. But, but uh, and, and then he, they, they make that point where she says, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of them because 
they'll attack each other, right? They'll kill each other, but they're not going to go after regular citizens because then the law is going to come down on them hard, right? Right. But that if, if they're out killing each other, right, the cops don't really care. But if they're going to kill an ordinary citizen, then they're going to be in trouble and they're going to face prison. And one of the things she mentioned was, you know, you know, prison is very expensive for the Yakuza. And just as a, as a cultural note here for anyone who, who doesn't know much about the Yakuza who's listening to this, the Yakuza are, um, because of that whole family aspect, that whole aspect of honor, the deal is that if, if a Yakuza guy goes to prison, the, the gang has to keep paying for his family's expenses, right? They have to keep paying the salary and all that. So, you know, the Yakuza doesn't want to do that. They don't want to, especially now with the, as they've declined in notoriety and, um, and, uh, and power. So they, they don't want to have to spend that amount of money to, to fulfill their obligations. So that, that's one of the reasons why they'll, they'll just use, like, they'll talk big and they'll, they'll threaten, but they won't actually act on those threats. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the idea of the Yakuza families dwindling, I think, is also an interesting note in this because it makes you, you know, think as to how much uh, had they really dwindled since the you know heyday of the post-war period, mm -hmm. where the black market was a really important part of the reconstruction of Japan uh, into you know the you know all the way through the Tokyo Olympics, you know, to, you know, the bursting of the bubble, which we're kind of right at. And that's another thing of watching this picture where, you know, this is released in the spring of 92, you know, the same year that, you know, there's tons of, of news articles and reporting on the fact that Japan's economic miracle had finally burst. Right. Had finally run out of gas and in some ways watching this film you sort of feel that floundering of the yakuza just trying to maintain their importance maintain their grip on society the hold that they have either through different kinds of construction jobs like we see a little portion of in this picture um or or these you know mundane you know small schemes to mm -hmm. you know just just you know eke out a few thousand dollars uh really suggests like a, a society on decline a group that's you know about to sort of fall apart and that's where like i you know, I haven't read extensively, uh, but I have read uh, some of uh, Jake Edelstein or Edelstein's work. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, he's focused a lot on the Yakuza and his reporting for, you know, the Japan Times and other publications through his career. And I think he's it was definitely uh, Yomiuri Shimbun, actually. Well, he yeah, that was where he was initially at, but he's also oh, okay. you know, published, okay. published more recently in, you know, Western magazines, but also Japan Times. But yeah, he was with Yomiuri, and uh, I think there was a period of time where he either was with Asahi or or was sort of mm -hmm. like battling with them, um, the sort of infighting that happens between papers. But yeah, he's, you know, made a career of sort of talking about the Yakuza and looking at sort of their decline, you know, in, in recent years. Uh, just a few notes about uh, Jake Adelstein, because... Uh, you know, the guy's an amazing writer. I just wanted to make sure people know where they could find his stuff. So um, a lot of what Patrick's talking about, especially his extensive experiences with the Yakuza, uh, he wrote a book called Tokyo Vice, which um, I definitely recommend everybody read. It's an amazing read. And it's being turned into um, uh, a TV series as well. I, I think on HBO Max, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, it was slowed down obviously because of COVID, but, but that's definitely a book you'll, you'll want to check out. And he also has um, a website. I think it's uh, Japan subculture. 
which he writes, which he does a lot of writing for and has a lot of other people writing for that. Also, he's got stuff in the Daily Beast and I referenced him extensively, especially when I did the, uh, the episode on shoplifters because he wrote a great article about um, kind of the conservative government response to that movie and how they tried to try to portray it as a pro-crime movie <laughs> because right, they, like, yeah sending. well i mean he's you know he's always of course been critical of you know uh, abe's mm-hmm. you know leadership and you know, i imagine that will continue with our uh new prime minister but yeah you know you ha- you have you have you know him always kind of trying to look in the cracks in the corners of mm-hmm. things that you know are useful in reporting on japan but also on a headline level are, are relatively enticing for Western mm-hmm. eyes too. You know, yes. he writes about the Yakuza, he writes about sex scandals uh, in the idol world. You know, mm-hmm. you have all of these different things that, you know, fit into the kind of reporting that, you know, a film like Mimbo no Ona fits sort of right into the world of, of what he was, you know, living through and, and dealing with in the 1990s. So I, I'd be curious. I, I don't know specifically if he wrote about this film, but I'd be curious what his thoughts were on, on a, on a picture like this. Well, he, um, and I actually know him, so I should probably talk to him about coming on the show at some point. Um, but uh, he he did, I know we talked about Itami a few times because one of the things he mentions in his book is that he had heard from uh, his Yakuza sources that uh, Itami's apparent suicide was actually not a suicide at all. It was actually the Yakuza retaliation for uh, not only this film, but also he was working on another film or he planned to work on another film um, I'm trying to double check here. Uh, but yeah, Itami had wanted to do another movie. And I think this was going to be... Um, yeah, so uh, a former member of the Gotogumi faction told Edelstein in 2008, we set it up to stage his murder as a suicide. We dragged him up to, to the rooftop and put a gun in his face. We gave him a choice. Jump and you might live or stay and we'll blow your face off. He jumped, he didn't live. Um, and he had been falsely accused of an affair, um, which is also believed that the, the affair was going to, was also a result of, of the Yakuza too, whether or not it was actually, um, real. And he had planned to do a movie. It was going to, he wanted to expose, um, some sort of connections between, uh, the Yakuza and, um, Oh, I got to double check this because I, I have it written down right here. Here we go. Yeah, so um, the, we're going to expose the Gotogumi's relationship with Soka Gakkai, which is, um, you know, a very influential um, cult, basically. Yeah, and and the manner in which they you know sort of tried to extort him in those you know if we are if we're following Adelstein's writing and you know we're we're following sort of the truth of that writing then you know the this idea of him having an affair is also sort of trumped up but it's also put in with the gossip magazines and the media sort of of the day mm. and so if you're if you're looking at the you know reporting of that coming out there was this idea that you know somehow this 
you know, potential affair would cause him to, you know, jump from the ceiling of his, of his office, which, you know, for his family members seemed like sort of an absurd thing, even if he had been caught in an affair. So there's just Mm -hmm. lots of things that continue to, you know, put doubt. And then with the more recent reporting by uh, Edelstein, you know, really suggesting, you know, that we're seeing the, the upshot from, you know, what had occurred uh, post this film of, of, you know, a week after the film was released in May of 92, that he's, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in an alleyway and uh, you know a car pulls up and is uh, stabbing and slashing him with a knife and he's having to be rushed to the hospital so I don't know if you've seen some of the news footage around that time but you know they have you know tens of cameras around him as he's actually being led into the hospital on a gurney and they're having to actually shove the reporters out of the way as he's being you know put into the hospital and uh, you know you have um, Miyamoto you know tearfully you know responding to a press conference and so the you know the nature of this story just sort of literally fell into real life in the week after the film was released and you know there's this sort of push and pull between the fiction of the film and the reality that you know comes right to them because the gotogumi was also accused of being responsible for the initial attack on Mm -hmm. itami so so in particular, this this family uh, really was displeased with with the choices Itami was making in his career and mm-hmm. and the ways that he was depicting the Yakuza. And it, it equally, I feel like if you go back and look at the news reporting at the time, you know, further exposes stuff that everyone is very familiar with of the exploitation by sort of media news culture of events like this. You know, mm-hmm. you have this really dramatic music of basically the same footage, the same four or five seconds of Itami being uh, ushered into the hospital, you know, as, as if this is like some high stakes drama rather than just a human being who has suffered a violent attack. You know, right. there, there's no, no sense of, of there being any kind of reality to this. It's all, you know, what artifice can we create around this, of this, of this violent attack and what, what little morsels of news can we get either from the grieving uh, wife or from mm. his uh, coworkers at his uh, office or the uh, hospital staff or the police officers that were on the scene, you know, even, even coming several days later and doing close-ups of blood splatters that they were finding on the road and mm-hmm. on the, um, you know, different uh, guardrails and things. So you just, you- Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's a little bit disgusting to sort of see the way that news media was sort of portraying this event, but it's very in keeping with other representations that you see at the time of, you know, there, there's even some films, I am escaping the name right now, where they're depicting, you know, media news members actually watching people being killed on live cameras, mm-hmm. uh, because there had been an incident like that in, I want to say the late 80s, or early 90s, you know, where you have this just sort of... Uh, really ravenous kind of uh you know not mainstream newspapers but kind of lower level you know weekly magazines that are just trying Mm. to have any kind of scandalous bit about whatever Mm. you know sex scandal we can you know publish about or any kind of violent act that we can kind of connect and this just sort of feels in keeping with that uh and it's it's 
it adds another layer to the importance of a picture like this is that, you know, the sometimes the ways in which we are satirizing society can have some real negative real life repercussions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that actually reminded me of uh, we were talking briefly about one missed call before we started up here. And um, it reminded me of, of that situation when the, the TV producer goes to the girl who's gotten the phone call and, you know, they're their whole thing is they want to put it on, on TV and they, they want to broadcast, even when she's clearly being attacked by something, he's still like, no, 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 keep the cameras rolling. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the there's, there's some type of, of benefit to be gained from like always filming. And that's, you know, only continued to grow over time. The importance of, you know, always having a camera on or, or recording every kind of event in life, mm -hmm. however, mon however mundane it might, might seem, you know, that you might be able to, to get some exposure or get some kind of, uh, you know, popularity, you know, out of it. Um, oh, go ahead. Oh, there, I was just going to mention too, the, the fact that, um, Suzuki is an accountant and Wakasugi is a former wrestler. I, I thought it was interesting that he chose those two jobs for those because for those two characters, because those are kind of like the two areas where the, the Yakuza really operate, right? Where they, they operate in um, the financial industry. They've got, there's, um, you know, they would, uh, they would buy up some stocks and then they would go to the board meetings and they would start intimidating the board. They would start causing trouble as a way to try to, kind of what they're doing to the hotel too. So there there's the the financial stuff they're into and real estate and all that kind of thing. But also there's the um you know the, the not only violence but also just their involvement in sporting events and like fixing sumo matches and, and things like that. So I thought um I just thought it was kind of a an interesting contrast to have both those two be the main characters that are afraid well, to to stand up to them. And equally, you know, what you would think of as the money and the brute force, if we're going to yeah, sort of boil it down to that, that they are both ineffectual, that neither of those things is able to, to accomplish the job initially. So it has that duality of referencing the real world entanglements of the Yakuza, but mm -hmm. equally just on a, on a narrative character level, you have, you know, seemingly someone that should have an understanding of the resources of the hotel financially mm -hmm. and how they can use that. And then on another end, someone who literally can push and thrust someone out mm -hmm. of of a space neither one being able to accomplish that you know also again, on the, this, yeah sorry go ahead oh just that that mystique that we were talking about the mm. yakuza just having a sense of control over them also i thought it was um on the gender equality aspect of it too because here you've got you've got you've got money and you've got physical power right these two images of masculine power in a modern society where you've got the you got the guy the this big strong guy and then you got the the money guy the and neither of those forces either, those traditionally, those source forces that are usually associated with masculinity are able to do the job as well. Um, so there's that aspect too, from the gender equality where you have to have a woman come in to stand up to them and, and sort of like slap their, slap them on the wrist and tell them to cut it out. Well, and, and even more so that this idea that by the nature of their gender, men would have an awareness of how to accomplish mm -hmm. a, a situation. It doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, Inoue needs to be, you know, someone three times as intelligent. You just need someone with competency. And right. in this case, we actually have a competent person who happens to be female that's able to do this and able to, uh, you know, because at no point you see her using her uh, gender in traditional ways of, of something related right. to sexuality or some kind of bodily control. It's all related to her awareness of the law, her own personal sort of history with the Yakuza mm -hmm. and her family that kind of drives her for her profession uh, that 
again, I feel like is another, you know, it's not like some huge step forward and this is not some amazing feminist picture, but just having a space where you're uh, focusing on the, the job of a person and you're not focusing on her love interest or her need to be with a man to accomplish the goal of the film. You know, there's, there's no sort of sense of her needing to have any kind of uh, other person help her out to accomplish her goal. And you even have that dialogue in there that, you know, she lives alone, you know, and that it's, and, and she's, you know, by herself that, you know, it's dangerous for a woman to live alone. And she just sort of brushes that off. It's like, it has no real weight in her, uh, you know, construction as a person or a character in the film. Well, something too about that is the fact that she's also a middle-aged woman, I thought was um, an interesting aspect. I mean, you know, in one way you could read that as the fact that she's Itami's wife. So that's why he put his wife in the movie, but it does, it is an interesting aspect of the film to have a middle-aged woman be the one who who takes control of this because middle, you know, it's been famously talked about that if you're in film, right, you've either got to be a young woman and you've got to be playing like, you know, one of those roles, or you've got to be an older woman and you've got to be like kind of like the mentor role or something like that. And whereas you've got this big gap in between where middle-aged women are just kind of ignored. So, or they're they're just mothers, you know, being in the home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Working in a service role. Yep. Right. But so for her having such a, a prominent role and being like this, really the source of all the power, in this movie, I thought it was a really good choice. Yeah, and even like when we were introduced to her, you know, like we were mentioning in the pool sequence, mm-hmm. you know, she's she's laying out, you know, almost like you'd be sunbathing, but rather than it be some kind of glamour shot or something, you know, that would inherently suggest sexuality, you have this close up of her face that she's got these tissues stuffed over her nose, you know, mm-hmm. so there's already kind of just a slight visual comedic element to her appearance that, you know, if you just even take that tissue away, you know, you don't get that extra little bit of an effect. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I've always kind of wondered sort of how and why that was whether it was you know a concern about sunbathing or not and and really you know in the making of they're talking in in explicit terms that like you don't see women uh in a shot like this where they aren't made to look glamorous where they aren't Mm -hmm. made to look like they're perfect so just by having uh, a person that is really like i think a closer approximation of maybe someone that would really exist in real life of, you know, just not really having everything completely together visually Mm -hmm. to, you know, sort of be this stunning beauty is just a nice little element. You know, it's, it's belied a little bit by, of course, the, you know, the, the makeup and the costuming and the Mm -hmm. hairdo that's done for a film, but it's still a little touch that gets you out of the realm of we are sexualizing this character. You know, you, you are focused on her for her, you know, what we find out at the end of that scene of what her job is and the skill set that she has far less than anything that's sort of related to a superficiality about, about, you know, this, this Inoue character. Well, the comedic element you, you mentioned made me think of something too. And the fact how it, it kind of sets your expectations when you see her, right? You see right. her and you think, oh, there's this, there's this funny looking woman with, uh, with these tissues stuffed up her nose. And then, and then she turns around and, you know, she's a total badass, basically. Right. Right. So much so that they, you know, they think she might be the wife of a Yakuza boss. You know, right. She's been exactly. Able to, to, to understand the the dialogue and, and is very able to sort of work with, you know, work within the bounds of these, these characters without even actually revealing anything about herself is able to get them to change their behavior. And, mm-hmm. you know, we go from there and, and it's a nice, you know, focusing on this opening sequence is great because it, it also sort of, it reminds me how, 
much work that first sequence has to do because she doesn't return to the film for another 40 minutes. Right. So you, you know, in a two hour runtime picture, you know, you only have about, you know, an hour and a half where Inoue is in some way kind of connected with the narrative of the film. So there's a lot of work that has to be done by these other staff members, the mm. Yakuza uh, to sort of set up the problems and the challenges that are faced before Inoue can come in and, uh, you know, really change the dynamic that we are sort of establishing throughout the early film. So that, that, early pool sequence has to do a lot of work for us to keep her in our mind mm. to think about how successful and effective she is so that when these staff members are bumbling through everything and the yakuza are kind of just running roughshod over them that we know that there's you know potentially this uh you know this escape or this you know competent person that can come in and, and change things but there's a lot of time that goes in between you know that opening sequence mm. and and her appearing underneath the table in the in the banquets uh, sort of scene which i love i think it's just again you know it's a great way to introduce the character she comes mm -hmm. in the narrative it's not like she's bursting through double doors and she's gonna you know solve it it's like she's literally climbing underneath this <laughs> banquet table you know and like oh it's cozy in here i'm gonna take a nap like just I, I love all those little touches that they don't mean anything in the push of the narrative and and what the characters mean or what they say but it's those little touches that stick in my mind as I think back on the movie of like how you introduce a character, how you present them, you know, what things can can give you just a, a little thing that you you remember them a bit more, you know. So I, I just I love all those little touches of Itami's films, you know, whether you're watching it in Tom Popo with the way that they, you know, deal with food culture or, you know, something, you know, like, uh, you know, the taxing woman returns mm -hmm. which uh deals a bit with the fraud that was taking place with these new religions that were happening a lot in the late 80s and early 90s you know mm -hmm. he's just got all these little observations that add on to a much sort of larger picture uh and so one thing that i made in my notes was like even thinking how it's a very small part but when the you know we get towards the end of the film and the Yakuza are, are sort of chasing the staff members around. They run into a wedding and knock over that big gigantic fake cake that mm -hmm. you know, certain couples that have a Western style wedding will, will do where you, you know, you're paying thousands of dollars to stand next to a gigantic fake you know, cake that, you know, is, it looks just sort of absolutely insane. And I just love that, you know, it's not commenting on whether it's a good or bad thing, but just sort of showing like, you know, these are all these little things that we do in life, all these expectations that we're supposed to have. Like if you get married, you're expected to do certain types of things at your wedding or, or have a certain type of wedding. And it would take place at a hotel like this so that you can have all the ambiance and you can have all these little, little elements that are involved in it. And I, I, I just always, it's like I said, light humor. It's, there's always just a little chuckle that I'm having as I'm watching his films. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something else too is in, um, this is a, something Itami had said. He said that Japanese men have four great weaknesses. They um, they can't stand loneliness. They can't make decisions alone. Can't face anyone who disagrees with them and can't accept responsibility for their mistakes. And also that they can't laugh at themselves. And I thought that was kind of an interesting quote to look at with this movie because you see a lot of those qualities in all the male characters throughout the movie. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I... I'm curious, like which which character do you think you know maybe best represents that or represents one of the facets for you? You know, in um, terms of like. Well, I think both um, uh, Suzuki and Wakasugi definitely um, represent that because they, and especially the um, they can't make decisions by themselves and they can't face being alone because I think that right. I think those two 
definitely apply apply to them. Um, and um, you know, can't fake face anyone who disagrees with them and can't accept responsibility. I think that really applies to kind of not only the yakuza but also the hotel management. I think that right. I think there's a lot of there's a lot going on with them. And you know they can't laugh at themselves. That definitely applies to to the Yakuza characters because they're like you said they're they're so oafish in this movie, and right. they never really realize how ridiculous they're coming across. Yeah, it's 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 the behavior is sort of you know the the inverse. They feel they're presented as speaking very seriously mm-hmm. and with in, with great intensity, but by the very nature of that intensity and the almost sort of rigid robotic way that they're going about these schemes of like what they need out of the staff members that the comedy just kind of keeps sort of building up because they are so controlled by their own expectation of, of what they represent as Yakuza mm-hmm. figures or, or how they're being portrayed in the film. Like I said, like the costuming alone does a lot of work where you have, you know, one family in all red suits or, or a type of red hue and equally, you know, a group in purple or, or the group in black, you know, you have very signified color coding for each of them so that once again, they are not individuals. We don't really know them as, human beings they are just part of this clan this gaggle of of people that are just making sort of loud noise like again whether you know uh, or can speak japanese or not you know the type of japanese that yakuza members speak and are portrayed in this film mm-hmm. you know not necessarily not necessarily representation of real life but within the world of this film is just the roughest you know hard it's it the language itself to me is absurd because I've seen a handful, good number of Yakuza films, and there is an element to the speech pattern in this film that's represented in those, but I feel like it's been dialed up three mm-hmm. or four levels to, to sort of present the absurdity of the way in which masculinity is sort of, uh, sort of structured in this group or the way that Yakuza are supposed to present themselves to the world that, you know, again, just seems like, lot of spitting and a lot of Mm. of frustration and and really never any moment where they seem like compassionate human beings so again that's where like when there's real violence uh sort of enacted upon itami i can understand it from just a basic sense of not being able to uh you know, take any kind of criticism or have any sort of internal humor. I mean, that to me, that's sort of the the ultimate success of the film, as as unfortunate as it is, you know, that this violence that was enacted upon uh, Itami and his family is really an outgrowth of just how well he's able to show the weakness of of what the Yakuza are. Right. And, and how they how they think of themselves and, and how they think of themselves in society and their importance in society, or at least the, the importance they build up for themselves. So that's why when I think of like uh, Kitano's trilogy of the past decade of the Outrage series, that just seems like that other end of it, like removing mm-hmm. the humor. So all you have is sort of the, the the utmost version of like the most serious, most dour Yakuza figures that you can put into a film which equally, if you were to do like a double feature with Mimbo no Ona, I think would still reveal just like in a little way, you know, in a small, small way, how Kitano can still kind of make fun of this group by presenting it almost as the most serious thing in the world that, you know, this, they're, they're just the most solemn, you know, not necessarily stoic, but just self-important people that you can put into a picture. Yes. Yeah. Uh, something else that also stood out to me was the, the black vans that they use the, 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 right. that, because, um, so for anyone who doesn't know, they, there are, there are a lot of, um, far right groups in Japan called, uh, Uyoku Dante. And 
um, is Dante? Yeah, Uyoko Dante. And um, these are these are far right um, groups. There are some that are anti-American, some that are just anti-Korean and anti-Chinese. Uh, basically, all of them agree that World War II was a smear campaign against the the Japanese Empire, and they deny war crimes and all sorts of stuff. And you know, just a bunch of you know far right nutcases, basically. And um, but one of the things they do is they drive around in these in these big black vans that are covered with um, uh, imperial Japanese slogans. They have like the um, the rising sun flag on it and all that kind of stuff. And um, and one of the things they they and they and they they're these vans are outfitted with loudspeakers and they're always broadcasting, you know, basically messages of hate uh, whenever they drive through. Um, actually, ironically enough, the first time I saw one was when I was on a date with a with a Japanese woman and it, we were just sitting in the car and this black van drives by and I look at her and I'm just like, were those the? And she's like, yeah, and she's just like really ashamed. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it for me. It was sort of like a almost a, a wake up siren on on Saturdays and Sundays. Like mm -hmm. I they I lived in Ryogoku for a time, uh, which you know has one of the the main uh, venues for uh, sumo matches in the winter time, and so we always like on the highway would have those uh, loudspeaker black vans driving by, you know, sending out their message, which you know at the at on a highway when you know you're hearing that there's so much distortion mm -hmm. it's it's much more difficult to sort of make out the specific things they're saying but if you go to you know shibuya or uh, some of the other major metropolitan areas where they're sort of camped out and they actually are stopping then then you kind of can you know hear the patter of what they're they're doing a bit more so it was interesting to see the utilization of that iconography for the means of the yakuza members to try mm -hmm. to you know again you know suggest that there was some uh, ill you know ill behavior by the hotel members you know mm -hmm. like you know again all a farce but using these mechanisms in society that, you know, people are familiar with these trucks and it's uh, maybe a negative element, but they're always sort of, sort of there, you know, I, it, again, like I was saying in a way, like the wedding cake where it, it's something that appears in the film and you have these black trucks in the film and there's a specific purpose of what they're doing, mm -hmm. but, and you could touch on the subjects we're talking about, but it's not inherent in the narrative. You know, they're not mm. talking about far right groups in the narrative of the film, but everyone is very familiar with what these trucks look like and what they right. represent and what they do. Uh, but it has no relation or bearing on the specific things that they are saying in in the you know dialogue of the film. So I, I mm. love that we have these again, these small touches that Itami is putting into the film that, you know, are visually you know right there we have multiple scenes with the vans in there but they're not talked about in a way where we are seriously sort of diving into the uh ramifications of what these right-wing groups are doing in society or, or how this film is making a judgment on them it's up really for the audience to kind of see them but inherently by putting the yakuza members in it again is revealing sort of the buffoonish behavior of these trucks i mean the trucks themselves in the film look like a, a sort of uh a heightened version of what you saw what you see mm -hmm. on the street because a lot of times the vans that you'll see on the street are quite a bit smaller than what we have in, right. in this film you know there there's any number of different models that that are used to you know strap a loudspeaker to but there's there's sort of an imposing visual sense to the trucks in the mm -hmm. film but again is undercut by just the buffoonery of the yakuza yeah and uh one of the things that uh people may not be a realize is that because um 
freedom of ideology is is protected under the Japanese constitution, um, arresting these members is very difficult unless they actually do commit violent acts. And um, the Yakuza use a lot of these groups as camouflage. There are a number of groups that, uh, that have affiliations with Yakuza syndicates. So one is a uh, Nihon Seinensha, um, which is uh, the Japan Youth Society, Nihon Kominto, uh, the Japan Emperor's People's Party, uh, Taikosha, Great Enterprise Society, Sekijuku, Saint Thinker's School, and uh, Yukoku Doshikai. So um, all of these, these are some of the groups that are known to have affiliations with Yakuza groups. And, and I, it's bold of, I think it's kind of bold of Itami to, to draw that, draw that, uh, use that visual and say, basically state in no uncertain terms that the Yakuza are working together with these groups, which no doubt pissed off a lot of people, I'd imagine. Right. And I think that that's, again, a, a, a wonderful thing about how his comedies function and and is a reflection of sort of the outgrowth of the type of people that he was working with. I mean he he comes from you know the you know the filmmakers of, of Oshima and Yoshida Kiju of the 1960s you know he he made a short film when he was a student uh, called Rubber Band Pistol that kind of in some ways is you know humorous but also is dealing with you know student life at the time which mm -hmm. in the 60s had a lot of uh, protesting against the uh, renewal of the security Treaty of Japan in both 1960 and 1968, uh, when the renewal for the treaty was coming up. So he, as just a human being and his lived experience, is kind of coming out of these, uh, you know, pushing back against what they saw as authoritarian groups or people that were imposing, um, you know, societal sort of will on on average everyday people. Mm -hmm. And I feel that antagonism in pretty much every one of his films, you know, the funeral is dealing with a family, you know, trying to figure out how do we actually put on a formal funeral ceremony when we're just the everyday regular people that don't think about these kind of things. And we don't have a great attachment to uh, what we think of as Japanese tradition or, or, or behaviors that are expected of us. So they have to do all of these different, you know, mod you know ways of teaching themselves how to sort of fit into it but mm. by doing that they equally reveal just how difficult it is to do something you don't have an interest in and then we move on to to you know taxing woman mm. uh tom popo uh the uh a quiet life the last dance all of these films are in some ways even if they have a sweet humorous tone to them are all like dealing with the struggles that people face when they are dealing with something that's challenging in their life that, right. you know, there, there's a lot of, of hardship of just moving through everyday life. And he does it with, you know, a lot of, of easy sort of digestible dialogue and, and humorous moments. And it reminded me of how like his film style is really understated. You know, you're not really looking at flashy camera work. You're not having a lot of intense, quick edits or montage or cross cutting. You know, you really are shooting it in a way that's, you know, much more like a, a sort of drama or sitcom, you know, kind of a, a combination of those two where you have a very clear sense of the geography of the space that you're in and you have a very clear sense of where the characters are and how they move through the frame so that you're not really focusing on his film style and you're much more focused on the dialogue. So you mm -hmm. have to make a connection with those characters. So those characters have to be saying 
something important or saying something that it has some meaning uh, for you. And in the case of Mimbo no Ona, I feel like you have a combination of some serious dialogue from the Inoue character, along with some of her biting wit, along with this sort of slapstick that you have with the Yakuza that creates this really nice balance between a drama and a comedy, you know, the, the classic dramedy idea that while Tompo and some of the other films that he's uh, Tommy has made get a lot more attention. I think Mimbo Noona is just a really great example of the type of film that uh, Itami was able to make in his kind of unfortunately shorter uh, mm. directorial career. It's because um, looking over at uh, at some of these films he's made, and you know I haven't seen all, I've only seen Tampopo in this one, but you know you, like you mentioned, like the funeral. Um, a taxing woman, uh, Daibionin, um, which was about the, the Japanese medical uh, institution, supermarket woman, the fact that he was planning to make this movie about the Gotas, Goto's connections to the, the Soka Gakkai. I think it, he was definitely um, one of these directors who, like Fukasaku, like um, to a lesser extent now, Koreeda, who wasn't afraid to really shine a, a very harsh light on on Japanese society and you know it, it's 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 real shame that we didn't get to see that he didn't survive and to to get to see what movies he would have made in, in the current climate because I think he would right. have definitely had a lot of interesting things to say about what's been happening in Japan in the past 20 years or so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be exceptional if he had been able to have a career long enough where he could more directly uh, kind of skewer the LDP or just mm. the upper lower lower house um, sort of machinations of government. You know, I don't know if that would ever be a topic that he's actually interested in since he usually used a family member or uh, an individual in a system to sort of you know be the conduit for it. So, mm -hmm. you know, I could very easily see him doing a fictionalized version of the um, uh, uh, Soda Kazuo documentary election or campaign mm. uh, from 2007, where you're looking at just sort of like a low level election in, in that case in Kawasaki City um, of just sort of the absurdity of what the LDP expects out of a candidate that they've, they've you know, kind of bespoke, you know, given their, their okay to or, or, you know, suggested to, to run for a specific seat, you know, that that documentary does a lot of great work, but I would really love to have seen. Sorry, uh, what was the of, what was the name of that documentary again? I believe the English title is is campaign. The Japanese title is Senkyo, and I think it was released in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And then uh, Soda Kazuo has made upwards of. 10 documentaries at this point and mm. uh he's had a lot of you know success in international festivals both documentary focused and um you know traditional festivals I, his his first really sort of splash was a uh, campaign because he was uh, a friend or an associate of the uh, subject of that documentary which is part of why he you know kind of had access to this and and he's gone on to do things that look at sort of uh, mental health in Japan, mm -hmm. which, you know, throughout history, you know, anyone that really didn't fit kind of a traditional mold, if you, you know, had a, a physical or mental disability, you know, sometimes could be kind of ostracized by society and really could only rely maybe on your family members if they didn't, mm -hmm. you know, look down on you um, for as much as there are, you know, social services and safety nets that exist in Japan, there still is a lot of societal sort of struggles and and his film mental uh did a great job of kind of looking at uh, a few 
people that you know are just sort of trying to live their live their life but deal with the challenges that that presents so and 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 then he's done other he's he's very focused on observational fly on the Mm -hmm. wall sort of cinema verite style and he's done several on fishing villages in remote parts of japan that you know by just the title suggest a very slow picture but like anything if you can get into the rhythm of the film there's a lot of really great rewards of of watching his films that you know connect him to a very nice tradition of documentary film in japan but uh, you know, things like Frederick Wiseman would be a good uh, mm-hmm. kind of Western connection to the type of films that um, Soda makes. And and he's he's really prolific. You know, he's made about one or two documentaries uh, every year for the past, you know, five, six years. He, he had a residency at the University of Michigan for a year and mm-hmm. uh, did a documentary on sort of like a, a football game or uh, an opening match that he did in collaboration with with students in like a, a capstone course. So he's just mm-hmm. he's really open to a lot of different ways of filmmaking but you know not you know in a documentary sense you know i feel like he and itami could could have a lot to communicate about because his his films do present an inherent political bias by -hmm. watching them but just by the nature of documentary form you are you are perceiving uh you know this edited together presentation of a type of life a type of existence It's, it's hard not to empathize with the subjects that are in that film and then to rethink how you have been behaving in your own life towards the people that are represented in this in this subject because you're looking at people oftentimes that don't fit the main uh, ideas of what people should strive for in their lives or what they should achieve or by no fault of their own deal with hurdles or challenges that you know they no one could be expected to to mm-hmm. overcome uh and yet they still are on a mass societal level you're just expected to you know grit grit and bear it and deal with it and gaman shinai and you know just 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 keep keep working at it so i i really think that there's a there's a lot you know like any tragedy with the loss of of itami we just missed out mm-hmm. on on a lot of other great pictures or, or even if he doesn't make you know some masterpiece later on that doesn't exist uh the ability for him to uh, talk about his career or reflect on it or to be able to have retrospectives where we can you know hear him kind of give some insight to what he was thinking about when he was making the films uh it's just it's just a real uh, sad loss but it's so mm-hmm. fortunate that you know, we have access to his films you know and that yeah. I, I feel like more people should now that there's a means to stream a lot of his films mm-hmm. outside of japan that you know people should take advantage of of seeing the kind of pleasure that that each of these films bring you know depending upon like i said what point of time in your life you're in i think there's a there's a slice of life film that uh, you'll you'll gravitate to in his mm-hmm. in his filmography and uh thank you for pointing out soda to me i've never heard of this uh this filmmaker before but just looking at his um his website I'm, and just hearing what you said about some of his films, I'm definitely gonna have to, to check out some of his work. Definitely seems oh, right up my alley. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's I, I, I enjoy showing his films when I can in any mm-hmm. uh, survey course that I offer or uh, if there's an opportunity to focus so documentary film uh, specifically, I, I love being able to show his films. But again, in this world that we exist in, uh, you know, his films are not as readily available on a streaming service. So you mm-hmm. have to buy from his website or through his Vimeo page, which I've done right. in the past. But I can't expect to have my students spend money for each of the films to to watch and stream. So that, again, kind of comes back to what are the things that streaming services have available to us and mm-hmm. uh like i was mentioning you know you have the classics of of kurosawa and ozu and mizuguchi on a lot of these services but someone like itami kind of is is sort of in the middle you might 
might be able to find his films, but other times, you know, they, they wouldn't have ever been streamable. Like you're mentioning, we've never had like a DVD release of English subtitles uh in the states for his films so you only had like an old vhs copy you could find so we you know the streaming services are this sort of gift and curse you know you have access but you never have the ability to know if it's going to be there in a few months or a year from now you have to just sort of hopefully get access when you can watch it when you can and 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 just share this uh type of picture with more people so that they'll they'll you know, maybe move beyond their natural sort of mm. sit down on the couch and watch what you're, where, you're, you know, turn your brain off type type of film. Because I think there's still like you're not having to work too hard to enjoy these narratives, but it's it's still something like you have to pay a little bit of attention to to get some of the smaller details. Yeah, it's it's amazing because there was this. It seems like these days the only movies you can really the only Japanese movies you really have easy access to are like the classics that criterion collection and they and you know their credit they put out a lot of really awesome products but um and then you get some you know the you know the 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 manga and anime 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 easily available and all that but and you know some of the more extreme stuff like you know the the you know the kind of um grindhouse style stuff that takashi Miike and those kinds of guys do or, or the horror stuff but there's like this whole universe of movies that just kind of gets you occasionally you might get something like there was the brief period when when I got into Japanese film in the early 2000s when there were a lot of like Viz Media and other comp- and Tartan they were putting out a bunch of different movies out on DVD so that's how I got at, that's how I ended up seeing like Train Man Linda 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 and um, uh, uh, Kamikaze Girls and and all these other types of movies these you know these very kind of like some of them are slice of life, but some of them are just kind of like, you know, they're, they're not these like big genre set pieces or they're not like the old classics. And, and also like Itami's films like Mimbo or, or, um, or Tom Popo or any of these other ones where they just, and they're just not doing that anymore. It doesn't seem like there's anyone who's really doing that. Yeah. I mean, there are a few vendors in uh, the UK. I think of like the uh, Arrow Films, Arrow Film Academy Mm -hmm. or Third Window Films. Um, And occasionally you'll have a a US uh, distributor like the I think you've talked about in the past, uh, one cut of the dead had a mm-hmm. release in the, in the UK, but also had a U.S. release. So it is, I would, I would agree. There's a more of a, a limit of the type of films that are being shown, but then, you know, in the States, at least there are a lot of films like the type that you're mentioning that appear on, uh, Amazon prime's video service oh, okay. or, or Netflix, uh, will have, uh, their, either their original content that they're putting mm-hmm. out because there is a Netflix Japan that yes, you know, is, yeah. is, is producing a lot of, of original uh, films and they're localizing it so that, you know, basically anyone with a Netflix account around the world can watch these uh, both movies and television shows. That's true. So, right. Like, Cause uh, Shion Sono, a lot of his movies are coming out through Netflix as well. And they've got right. uh, the naked director TV series and then the, um, the Jew on TV series. Those are both through Netflix as well. So yeah, that's, that's very true as well. So it's like, again, it's this gift and curse of like, there is access to things, but at the same time, there's a wall to it. You have to have a subscription to a specific service to uh, just be able to license it, but you won't have a copy for yourself. So you wouldn't be able to necessarily directly share it with a friend right away or, you know, there's so, or there's a VPN limitation based on a geographical sort Mm -hmm. of limitation. So there's lots of things that like, again, you know, as much as we move forward with technology, there's things that pull us right back. So, you know, in the case of the classics, 
there's a lot of access to those because there's been enough distribution around the world to you know, be able to find them. But it also cultivates an idea of what Japanese cinema is for the masses, you know, in, in yeah. a very different way than what, you know, Tartan and these others did with the idea of J-horror or Asian extreme in the early 2000s. They're still kind of sculpting and creating an idea of what Japanese cinema is. And, and that's what, again, makes it difficult for a lot of reasons, language acquisition, just licensing of titles to mm-hmm. really be able to see a spectrum of movies that exist. Because as much as, you know, we've been talking about Itami Juzo films, they're not every type of film that's being released. You know, it was, it was interesting because uh, Mimbo no Ona was uh, the fifth highest grossing film of 1992. Uh, but it was, you know, it was below uh, Porco Rosso, the Ghibli picture and mm-hmm. two Two Drymon films, um, but you also had, you know, pictures like uh, the uh, long-running Torosan series. You know, still kind of making a decent amount of money for Shochiku being in the top ten. Uh, but it's also released at the same time that you have uh, something like the sequel to uh, Tetsuo, um, the uh, Body Hammer. I mm. think was the subtitle for that one. Uh, and then it's also at the same time that the rise of V Cinema is really sort of in a stronghold. So you know, we think of uh, something like uh, the King of Minami series that also had just mm. you know tens and tens and tens of of releases you know that you could put out very cheaply um but present like just a quick way that you know you could do a, a rental at you know whether it's staya or your uh, different local rental house you mm. could just pick up one of these cheap v cinema uh films and uh pop it in at the same time that you have these more traditional uh theatrical releases of something like mimbo noona so like just the timing and the the space that this film appears i think also presents a a a nice facet into the mm-hmm. the type of uh, hopes that the industry was having for how they could kind of keep themselves afloat during, again, a very uh, sort of nebulous economic time as the bubbles mm-hmm. bursting and, and people are kind of scrambling to figure out how they're going to be able to survive this next sort of downturn uh, economically, uh, you know, as we go into, you know, what is thought of as the lost decade for Japan lost decades now <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah exactly continues yeah. on and on mm-hmm. but yeah but but no i i that's that's most of the notes that i had for the film it's it's just been a pleasure being able to talk about itami because he again is someone that is known and was very popular at the time of the release of his films mm-hmm. but i think that there's still with every generation it's useful to um you know provide another light another lens to these filmmakers that i think can still teach us things about society today even if even if the films are are now you know 20 30 years old absolutely and well that's one of the one of the one of the bad things about japanese society is it things change so slowly here but one of the good things is a lot of these movies are still very relevant like i taught you know i i taught uh train man densha otoko when i teach that in my class you know most of my students they either were, were, you know, toddlers when it came out or they weren't even born yet. And a right. lot of the themes in that movie are still relevant today, even more well, relevant I, in some cases. Well, I mean, there's the specifics of the, you know, the way, you know, like the way like train culture, mm-hmm. uh, you know, functions or the way the technology worked at the time for the coupling to take place uh, in that in that story in particular. But, uh, you know, in the case of Mimbo Nona, we're just dealing with power. You know, yeah, yeah. It, you know the the dynamics of who has it, who controls it, and how do you you know skirt around 
the laws and the rules of society. Mm -hmm. That's something that in any permutation of, of society, you're going to see that type of dynamic exist. The specifics of it could change. And it may even still be very much representative of what people do today. Mm -hmm. um, because again, 30 years in, in terms of like legal changes and societal changes still could be, you know, kind of a, a short period of time. Mm -hmm. But I think that the the heart of of Itami's films are things that are like core human behaviors, you yeah. know, and it's 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 filtered through all of these different little add-ons and things that could be specific to early '90s culture or or you know Japan for you know a period of time. But at the heart, there's always something that's about just human behavior, how humans react to other humans, and and what their what our fears are, what our hopes are, mm -hmm. and it's kind of that it sounds kind of lofty, but I think that that's one of those reasons why a picture like Dencho Otoko, um, you know, dealing with the coupling of a person who's a little bit nebbish uh, with someone that seems like they're out of his league, you know, is still really appealing because that's that's a theme that I think exists for a lot of people. I think most people, whether you're male or female, has a moment in your life where you don't necessarily feel completely sure of yourself or have utmost confidence in your ability to whether it's through a romantic uh, relationship or through your professional development there's there's always those those things that appear so even if you go 20 30 years on we might look at the telephones or the cell phones or the technology they're using as like a little bit dated but the behavior is probably very very similar mm -hmm. yeah um so I'm just looking up on the on the Criterion collection. So yeah, Mimbo is available on there. It still looks like. Um, yep. Title is uh, it's they don't they don't use the the Mimbo title though. They use the the um, um, rough English translation of the Gentle Art of Japanese Extortion. So if you're looking for Mimbo, which I just tried to do on there, it won't show up. You have to search for the Gentle Art of Japanese Extortion or just search for Itami. Um, right. And um, look, it looks like they got a lot of his stuff on there. They got A Quiet Life on there. They've got Taxing Woman, um, Rubber Band Pistol, which was his first movie, was a short. They've got The Funeral, um, Woman in Witness Protection, uh, The Last Dance. So, so yeah, all, all his stuff they've got on there, it looks like. Yeah, yeah, I think... I think just about every one of his, his films is on there. Like I said, they even have his uh, short film... Uh, rubber band pistol, mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, you know, again, it's it's a something made much much earlier in the 1960s, um, but it it's still like is a nice little window into uh, you know his growth as as a person and the types of films that you know he he would go on to make. Um, so yeah, I think any of the pictures that are available either through a streaming service or otherwise are useful to check out just to to, to kind of get a sense of of his film style, the types of things they looked at. I think the only one you're missing out on is uh, Dai Bioing, uh The Last Dance. No, that, that uh, is on there too. Oh, it is? Okay, because yeah, uh, when, well. when, I, when I was searching earlier, it wasn't, it wasn't accessible. So that's great. So that means that, yeah, you can really look at any one of his films and um, and and like you were mentioning, you know, you hadn't checked out the funeral yet. That might be a good one to to run to, since it was sort of his mm -hmm. his re return to form, and and also for uh, uh, Nobuko Miyamoto, like also her return to you know being in front of the camera, and uh, it's it's again, it's just a nice. Uh, you know, poking at the way societal conventions, you know, expect people to behave versus the reality of how most people are, and yeah. and the and the challenges that we face of of just trying to fit into to these expectations that are put around us. And it looks like they also have um, some behind the scenes videos too. They looks they've got a they got a move they got a video about um, Itami and Miyamoto's collaborations. They've got a making of Tom Popo, and they've got um, 
judging from the the screenshot, uh, yeah, 2016, it was recorded. Um, Miyamoto looking back on Tom Popo, you know, some, you know, however many years later. Uh, so yeah, that if if you're on the Criterion streaming service, uh, lots of good places to check out his stuff. Um, so definitely do that. Definitely check out Gentle Art of Japanese Extortion because this is one movie that a, a lot of people will not be aware of, and it's it's um, it's it's a it's a really like I I found it to be a lot more entertaining than Tom Popo. Um, so I, I I gravitated towards it a lot as well. And if if you like these types of you know, the other thing that's interesting about it is just thinking about this is um, how we were talking about how you've got the the classic depictions of the yakuza, then you've got these more comedic ones, and then and how there are these over the top aspects. And it is kind of funny when you think about how V Cinema kind of merged those two different aspects together, and you get like the, the really like kind of grindhouse stuff you see from from Mike with things like Full Metal Yakuza or or Gozu or, or the Dead or Alive series and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. You know, just you have lots of different ways in which you know cinema can mm-hmm. take things on strip things away you know there, there's just all these different forces that push and pull what types mm-hmm. of movies are are made and are made accessible to 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 audiences at large okay okay uh patrick thanks so much for joining to talk about mimbo and itami and a little bit more in general uh, any uh any final things you'd like to say before we close up Oh, I mean, nothing uh, specific about this. It was just, a, again, a pleasure to, to be here. And I, and I hope people can go and explore more of Itami's films if uh, they haven't already. Yes, absolutely. Well, Patrick, uh, thanks so much for coming on again. We got to have you again um, in the future to talk about uh, another movie. Definitely. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay. okay, so that does it for this episode of Japan on Film. Um, be sure to join us in the next episode. Uh, just checking the calendar here, I believe next time we'll be talking about uh, Blade of the Immortal, the a- adaptation of the manga, So, um, which I believe was directed by, by Mike, if I'm remembering offhand. So come join us next time. Meanwhile, you can go to japanonfilm.com, follow us on Twitter. Um, also, we got a Facebook group. Uh, just type in Japan, Japan on Film into the search box. You can easily find us on there. And yeah, thanks so much for joining us and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Japan on Film. If you have comments about this episode or suggestions for movies to spotlight in future episodes, you can contact us over at the website, japanonfilm.com. You can also find links to purchase your own copies of the movies discussed on the show at the website. Anytime you purchase through our links, it helps support this show please consider posting a review of Japan on Film to iTunes. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.